All right, well, that's a fun way to start the book of Daniel, huh? It's definitely not a boring book, so we wanted our intro to capture the excitement. Hey, I'm so proud of you for being in church today. I am so excited for this series about the book of Daniel. It is growing my faith, and I know it's going to grow yours if you'll commit to be with us here for this week and then the three that follow. Well, one of the things I love about Connection Point is that we are a church of real people. Uh, We're not a place where we uh, pretend to be perfect. We're not a place of religious people. We are real broken and interesting people who are following Jesus in a real world. So we love to laugh together. We're also honest and real when we go through struggles. The reality of following God in a broken world that is corrupted with evil is that there will be great highs in our lives, there will be great lows. This is a place where we get to come together with other people who are also saying, God, I want to follow you. I want your best in my life. And we get to encourage each other. We get to cheer each other along. Today, we're talking about the fires in our life. And I want to encourage you to be real between you and God as we go through his word today about what are the trials, what are the difficulties in your life. And I'll share one from my life. Here's a picture of my Aunt Judy. I grew up with my Aunt Judy. Uh, She is my dad's sister. And actually, it's pretty neat. This whole side of the family all knows Jesus because of a guy on a Ford assembly line in Ypsilanti, Michigan, who back in the 1940s shared Jesus with my grandpa and it ended up changing the legacy of our whole family. And that's another thing I love about this church is that we've got so many three-generation families here where there's grandparents and kids and grandkids. And don't forget, when you're inviting people to church, when you're sharing Christ with your coworkers or your neighbors, that just one person led to Christ can end up impacting thousands of people, bringing thousands of people to Christ. Well, my Aunt Judy is one of those. And I don't know if you have someone like this in your life. Maybe you feel like you are this person where for my Aunt Judy, it seemed like everything that could go wrong did go wrong in life. I mean, physical difficulties, relational difficulties, circumstance difficulties. Here's a picture of my Aunt Judy with uh, two of my cousins, my cousin Susan and my cousin Gene. Now, Gene would want you to laugh at his shirt, so feel free to have a good chuckle here. Here's the thing. Gene's probably about six years older than me. I remember growing up um, when I was in elementary, Gene started to have some difficulties. Uh, He ended up being diagnosed with a number of mental illnesses, one of them being schizophrenia. I mean, the classic sense of like really loud voices in his head had to be institutionalized for a number of years. And my Aunt Judy ended up being just this anchor this care provider for my cousin Jean, as over the decades they've tried different medications and and different circumstances to try to stabilize him. And in the last five years or so, Jean has become really stabilized. In fact, this last summer, I was hanging out with my Aunt Judy and my 10-year-old son Jack was with us. And Jack had so much fun with Aunt Judy because she had this way, even though she'd been through so much hard stuff in life, she just had this optimism, this faith, and, um, and this joy, and, and she could connect with people. So my son, Jack, when we hung out in July, she just, I've never seen Jack connect so quickly with an adult because she just kept asking him questions and questions. Well, my Aunt Judy uh, was battling cancer for most of the last year, and in January, we thought that really the worst was through, but unexpectedly, um, she passed away. She got called home to heaven. And uh, she knows the Lord. I know I'm going to see her again. But the person who I immediately thought of was my cousin, Jean. 
Because I remember my Aunt Judy saying, now that Gene's kind of stabilized and he was living with her, that is kind of like she was the brains and he was the bronze, right? He was this big guy and he could open the jars and, and move things around for her. And as her body got weak with sickness, her mind was still sharp and her heart was still tender. And when I heard that she had unexpectedly passed away at age 67, I just immediately thought of my cousin, Jean and thought about, you know, who's gonna really take care of Jean? How's Jean gonna do? Two weeks ago, I was at my aunt's funeral up in Ohio. Uh, and while it was definitely a time of mourning, it was also one of those times where most of the family on this side knows Christ, and we all know that we're gonna see her again. We all know that this isn't the end. Uh, and Jean actually had some really, really powerful things to share about his mom's faith and how he knows he's going to see her again. But I remember this moment when the casket was um, being carried by the pallbearers out to the hearse. And my cousin, Jean, I was just kind of watching him to see what he would do. Because Jean's very simple. He's very, it's like an elementary child in a very big body and just a sweet, tender heart. And I remember just watching him just kind of follow the casket, just kind of like he's just following like, you know, where, where do I go now? And in that moment, I was thinking, you know, God, I, I know you're real. I know you're big. I know you're in control. I trust you. But I got to be honest, God, like why this order of events? You know, why, why would she go to heaven at age 67? Why, why would you take her first? And here's the thing, as you follow God, the question is not if you'll have times when you wonder, God, why are you doing this this way? The question is when. And here's the question that we're wrestling with together today. When your world's falling apart and God seems absent, how can you move forward? I don't know where your world feels like it's shaking or falling apart there's sometimes when the world shakes and it's like, man, I just know God's right there with me. But there are other times when our world shakes and it seems like, God, you know, where are you? I mean, God, I'm calling out to you. Why aren't you showing up? So when that happens, how can you move forward? And I mean this in the most simple, practical sense of how do you actually get up and go to work in the middle of that discouragement? How do you keep paying the bills? And also, how do you keep moving forward in your faith? and not quit or give up on your faith. My Aunt Judy taught me for my entire life that you can maintain your faith, you can actually grow your faith in times of difficulty. As I mentioned, as she went through one difficult thing after another, her faith didn't diminish, her faith grew stronger. And with it, her joy I mean, she was a joy to be around, whether she was going through cancer treatment or finding out that her oldest child had a mental illness that would be with him his whole life. She always had this internal joy from the Lord. How did she do that? How can you do that? I don't know where you feel like your world might be falling apart, but I'm about to put a list of things up, and these all come straight from the true story that we're going to study today in the Word of God. We're going to learn about a person whose world was falling apart because his family was ripped apart, literally torn away from his family. And maybe that's something that you're experiencing, or maybe for you it's that the people you counted on have been taken away. There was someone you, you could depend on, and when you showed up, you'd get a smile from that person or a hug from that person, and now that person's not here, and you just feel like your, your world's shaking, and you're wondering, God, where are you in this? 
Sometimes God calls us to spend years in an uncomfortable place that we never wanted to be. That might be the uncomfortable place of a marriage that's not what you thought it would be. It might be the uncomfortable place uh, of your workplace or your health, or that you thought you'd have kids and you don't have kids. It might be, I'm just going out on a limb here, that you used to live in California and now you live in Indiana in the winter, just hypothetically, you know. It might be that your nation falls, right? We've got a presidential election this year, and here's what I can safely predict. The morning after the presidential election, half of the country will be depressed and convinced that the nation is falling apart. We'll just find out which half. I mean, it's literally like 50%, right down the middle. When your place of worship is attacked, and we're gonna see in this story the very temple of God gets attacked and pillaged, and sometimes you're investing in a work of God, and sometimes I feel this as a pastor that there's either spiritual attack or there's people just making up weird stuff, and you think, God, where are you? Why aren't you defending your work? Well, I don't know which of these you might relate to, but let's look at the true story of Daniel, and let's find this answer for you today. How can you move forward when your world is shaking and it seems like God is absent? We'll start in Daniel chapter 1. Verse 1, during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah. Where's Judah? Well, it's Jerusalem. It's the Jewish people. It's God's people. Uh, The same God we worship, Jesus was Jewish. He was the Messiah of the Jewish people and actually of all the nations. So these are God's people. Now, sadly, they've turned away from God and disobeyed him over and over and over again. And now a judgment essentially is falling on them. By the way, if you don't yet have a Life Application Study Bible, we would love to give you one today at our Connection Corner or you can buy one at our church library. I encourage you as we go through Daniel, it's a great time if you've never read the Word of God, pick one of these up. There's great study notes in here. And the reason I say that is there's so much more in here than I can unpack for you in our little bit of time together. But King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he's a well-documented, he's actually the most documented ancient king in world history. He built Babylon, the famous Babylon that had the hanging gardens. I mean, this was a massive world empire. There are statues today, and I could nerd out for about an hour on the historicity of Nebuchadnezzar. But he came to Jerusalem, which is where Daniel, our main character, lived. And he besieged it. What does that mean? Well, that's when, when an army would surround one of these ancient cities. So you can see this in movies like Lord of the Rings and some other movies that depict ancient warfare where an army will come and they will encircle a walled city. And the, the premise was kind of this. Okay, you guys have your walls, but guess what? We're encamped around you and eventually you're going to run out of food. And what would happen is the people in the city, they would eat their reserve food and often they would have wells in there so they'd have water, but eventually they'd start to run out of food. And you can imagine psychologically how it would wear on the people in the city when every morning they wake up and they look out and there's this vast army surrounding their city and they know the stories, they know it's really just a matter of time until they're weak and tired and discouraged and in the darkness in the middle of the night, Those enemy warriors get some ladders up over the walls, and the first ones get in, kill a few of the guards around the walls, open the gates, and your life is over, your city's done, your home is gone. And that happened to Jerusalem. The Lord actually gave this King Jehoiakim victory over Judah. Why would God do that? 
Actually, it gets worse. The Lord permitted Nebuchadnezzar to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So as these warriors rush in, destroying the city of God's people, they actually go right to the temple where Daniel would worship. And they take these sacred objects that have spiritual significance and meaning to God's people. Why would God allow this? So Nebuchadnezzar, he takes these treasures back to the land of Babylon and he places them in the treasure house of his idol or small g God. It's a time in history where almost every major world civilization had two things, slaves and idols, big stone or metal idols that they would worship and they would pray to and say, please let it rain. And, and some, of these, some of these societies and ancient civilizations were so wicked that they would actually sacrifice their children to these gods or these idols. Well, then the king orders his chief of staff to bring to the palace some of the young men from Judah's royal family and the other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Daniel's gonna end up being one of these young men. So I just want you to put yourself in Daniel's shoes for a minute, okay? You grow up in a city. You love your city, right? I mean, it's like you, 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 this is your identity. And then one day, the city is besieged. You see it fall. You see your home get taken over by these invaders. You get put in chains and carried away. Not all of the Israelites, but a certain percentage of them were brought to Babylon as captives. So you've lost your nation. You've lost your home. You saw the place where you used to worship get pillaged and ransacked. You get put in chains and dragged to a totally different nation. They speak a different language. Everything's foreign and weird. But at least you're still with your family in this captivity. But now you're gonna get ripped away from your family. Verse four, select only the strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. Make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning and are gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. So what's happening? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, he's conquering multiple nations. And he's bringing back the royal families from each of those nations for a strategic reason. They know how to control their city or their state. So he wants them in Babylon. And then from them, he picks between about 10 and 16 years old the most promising of their young men. And then they're gonna go through three years of essentially Babylonian brainwashing. They're gonna go to the King's University for three years and they're gonna be taught that everything about their old society didn't really matter, but Babylon is what matters. And they're gonna learn Babylon's language and learn Babylon's religion. And Daniel ends up getting selected as one of these young men. Well, the king assigns them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchen. So they'll eat the king's food. They're gonna train for three years before they ever meet King Nebuchadnezzar. And then they will enter the royal service. And depending on how much the king likes them, they might be one of his advisors or they might get relegated out somewhere else. Well, Daniel and three of his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were four of these young men. And the chief of staff then renames them. So very interesting. Now Daniel, he's lost his family, his home, his national identity. Now he's even lost his name, his personal identity. And so you think about this question, where is God? Here's a young man who had been trained in what we call the Bible up to this point. He knew the law of Moses. 
He knew the Psalms and the Proverbs. He'd been trained in those things and trained that God is faithful. He rewards the righteous, all these things. And now his circumstances are screaming, where is God? Either God's not there or God's not actually for you. Everything in his circumstances is saying that. Here's what we learn from Daniel. When God seems absent, he's actually working in bigger ways than you can see. And that's worth writing down because it sounds simple, but it is a life-changing idea if you will apply it to your circumstances. When God seems absent, he's actually working and he's working in bigger ways than you can see. I wonder right now in your life, where does God seem absent? If you're really honest, I mean, is it in your career? Is it in your health? Is it in your family? Where does it just seem like, okay, God, it's not that I don't believe, but it just seems like you're absent in this area. I believe God brought you here today to challenge you with this idea. That very area where God seems the most absent is actually the area where God is the most at work. It's just that you can't see it. It's just that you can't see it. Your choice is the Daniel choice, and it's this. Will I trust God when everything around me tells me that he's absent? And here's what we're going to learn in the story of Daniel, who three years later will end up being chosen by the king to be his right-hand counselor. Daniel never could have imagined that. He was probably 14 years old, 14 years old when all this happened. Could he have imagined that, well, God, you know what? This will be hard, but I know three years from now, I'll be the right-hand man to the king, so I'll, I'll just bear it. He couldn't have seen that. He couldn't have imagined that. Somehow, he chose to believe, God, you're still at work. I don't understand it. I can't comprehend it. I don't know how you could possibly bring good from it, but I'm just going to keep believing. And maybe you're here, and that's what you're thinking. You say, John, you know, I want to have this kind of faith. But John, the situation that I'm thinking about, the trial I'm in, the fire I'm in, that thing that happened to me years ago that I still can't work my way through, you don't understand. There's no way God could possibly bring anything good from that. And here's the point. That's exactly how Daniel, that's the situation he was in. And the whole point is that that's when it's faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. If you could see, oh, well, God's going to work it all out this way, then guess what? That's not faith. That's sight. Daniel never could have seen how God was going to bring good from it. And Daniel's not the only one. Scripture's full of true stories like this. A, a young man named Joseph who was sold as a slave, betrayed by his brothers. He never could have imagined that he'd end up becoming the right-hand person to the Pharaoh of Egypt. And time after time, Joseph's life fell apart and it seemed like God was absent, but he continued to believe. Why? Because we walk by faith, not by sight. I love this quote from Jesus in Luke 18. Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So I would say to you, if you say, John, you don't understand. There's no way any good could possibly come from the thing I'm going through. Guess what? I agree that it's impossible humanly. But I'm here to tell you that it is possible with God. We serve a God who raises dead bodies to life. We serve a God who raises dead marriages to life. We serve a God who can take an addict and turn them into a person who's set free. 
We serve a God who can take the most selfish narcissist possible and he can transform their heart and make them into a selfless servant. We serve a God who transforms families and cities and societies. And so, yes, I know that it's impossible humanly, but don't forget that God can do the impossible. You know, there's this bizarre true story of Jesus in the gospels, right when he begins his, what we call his public ministry, where he's, he's baptized and it's this moment where the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we worship one God and three persons, all three of them show up at Jesus' baptism. And the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus and then there's this really weird verse that says, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness or the desert to be tested and tempted for 40 days. And then for 40 days, Jesus is out in this desert. He's not eating because he's fasting. He's by himself in the desert. I mean, I would lose my mind just being alone in the desert for 40 days, even if I had food. And Satan comes to Jesus and he tempts him. Just like Satan went to Adam and Eve when they were living in a paradise and he tempted them, Satan comes to Jesus in a far more weakened state. And here's the bottom line temptation that Satan gives to Jesus. He says, Jesus, God the Father's plan for you boy, it doesn't make sense. He, he's leading you to suffer. Why would you do that? He's ultimately gonna lead you to die on a cross. Jesus, bow down and worship me and I'll make you ruler over the earth. In other words, you wanna be Messiah and rule the world and save the world? I'll give you the easy way out. And Jesus in that moment chooses to believe that I'm gonna trust the Father's plan even though it's way harder than the easy way out. That's what faith is. And that's what God is gonna call you to do as we go through this Daniel series because God does want to bring good from what you're going through. But just like Daniel, we get to choose. When you choose to trust God in a time when he seems absent, it leads to a miracle down the road. If you'll choose to trust God when he seems absent, that's when you'll see him do a miracle. Not always the next day. Daniel's first miracle will come 10 days later. And then his biggest miracle will come 70 years later. You choose to trust God when he seems absent, that's when you see a miracle. Daniel, I believe, could have missed out on seeing God do miracles and seeing God work good from the difficulty if he hadn't trusted God, but he did choose to trust God. Did you know at any given moment there are forces controlling your life that are way bigger than you feel? I mean, we tend to feel that, right, like my spouse is mad at me, that's what's controlling me, or my boss did this, that's what's controlling me, or maybe if you think a little bit bigger, like, oh, the macro economy or the stock market, but did you know there's way bigger forces controlling your life than you typically think of or realize? I'll give you one example of that, is the curvature of the earth. It's not something you can see from anywhere on earth. Do you know that if you climb Mount Everest, the highest point on earth, and you look out with a telescope, you're not gonna see the curvature of the earth. So, is it actually flat? I kid you not, I once met a guy. I once met a guy who was convinced that the earth is actually flat. It's hilarious. He'd watch some YouTube videos from some conspiracy theorist, and he was like, John, and I'm like, dude, what about, like, you can get on a sailboat, you can literally go around the world. He was like, no, 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 it's all, it's all made up. He was convinced it's flat. Why? Because he can't see it with his own eyes. 
And I can kind of chuckle at him, but if I'm honest, there's a lot of times spiritually where I say, God, it's flat. And God says, no, trust me, it's curved. It's different than what you see because it's so much bigger than what you can see. And I say, I don't know, God. Looks pretty flat to me. Right, don't we do that? The actual forces at work in our life are so much bigger than we understand. And here's the thing, God is bigger than all those other forces. Here's the theme in the book of Daniel, God is bigger than the biggest forces that we feel are controlling our lives. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was a big force. Babylon was a big force. We know that from ancient documents. We know that because the city of Babylon is still there in the country of Iraq. We know that this was a massive force. And on the ground, it looked like Nebuchadnezzar was the biggest thing. But Daniel chose to keep believing God is bigger than the biggest forces that I can perceive in my life. And the same is true for you. The biggest force, you might think my failure's too big, my addiction is too big. Whatever it is, that person who is broken, they're too powerful. I'll never have a healthy life because of that person. Guess what? God's bigger than that person. He's bigger than your failure. He's bigger than your mistakes. He's bigger than the economy. He's bigger than your job. He's bigger than depression. He's bigger than apathy. He's bigger than anxiety. God is a bigger force than the biggest forces that you can perceive in your life and you can trust him. I'll give you another example of this. Did you know that right now as you sit here, you're moving at 66,000 miles per hour? That's how fast the earth is moving in its orbit around the sun every moment. Not only that, as it's moving around the sun, it's spinning at about 1,000 miles an hour. Does anyone feel like we're moving 66,000 miles an hour? I mean, maybe metaphorically you do, right? But physically, we don't, we don't feel that, do we? But is it true? Yes. And the same is true in the spiritual realm that God is working in such a bigger way and faith is just saying, you know what, God? I'm gonna choose to believe in you. I'm gonna choose to believe that you're bigger. Daniel experienced not only great loss, but he would later experience betrayal. And many times where God seemed absent or untrustworthy. But the theme through all these unexpected changes is that God was working and God did have a plan. In the book of Daniel, we learn about what theologians call God's sovereignty. The word sovereign comes from when a king or queen would have unchecked rule over an area. God has unchecked rule over the universe. He's sovereign. That is, he's bigger than the biggest forces that you think are controlling your life. Not only is he bigger, but he has a plan and he's working his plan. And just like Daniel, he wants to invite you to be part of his plan. So like Daniel, we get to choose, am I gonna trust God? Am I gonna obey God? Will I be bold about God's work even when my circumstances seem to hint that God has forsaken me? If you grew up going to Sunday school, there's this famous story of Daniel in the lion's den. We'll get to it when we get to chapter six. It's this true story where after Daniel is appointed as right-hand man to the king, the king is gonna pass a law that says you're not allowed to pray to other gods. Well, Daniel continues to pray to God because he knows that God's bigger than Nebuchadnezzar. He gets arrested. He gets thrown in this den of lions who are, you know, 
there to eat him. And it's this miraculous thing where he's in there all night and God holds the mouths of these lions shut. Now, I heard that story growing up as a kid. I always imagined Daniel being like, I don't know, 25 or 30. Do you know that because of the history, we can track the different kings that Daniel served under? 70 years had passed. So age 14, he's ripped away from his home and everything. He goes to the King's University. Then 70 years pass. Daniel's about 80 when he's in the lion's den. So here's the thing, whether you're 14 or 84, God's got something for you in this series about learning to trust a God who's bigger than what's going on around you. I mean, maybe if you're 14, it's that when you're with your friends and they're choosing to watch something on a screen that you just know in your spirit, God wouldn't want you watching that. And you choose to say, you know what? God's a bigger force than my friend's. So even though it might let them down and they might not think I'm cool, I'm going to do what's right. And maybe you're 84 and it's like, what's the point of life anymore? But you get out of bed every day knowing God is a bigger force than how I feel or the condition of my body. If I woke up on planet earth, he's got a purpose for me today. And every one of us in the middle, we can learn to see God as bigger than the people and the things around us because God is bigger he can be trusted. Because God's bigger than your biggest problem, you can trust him. I know that problem seems like it defines you. I know it seems like there's nothing bigger than it, and it might be true humanly, but what's impossible with man is possible with God. God's bigger than the biggest problem that you're facing. So here's an honest question. How do you experience God in these times when he seems absent? I mean, it's step one to say, okay, God, I believe, I I choose to believe you're bigger. I'm making that choice, but God, now how do I experience you when it seems like you're not there, it seems like you're not looking out for me? Well, we can answer that question by looking at verse eight here in chapter one. Here's what happened in verse eight. Daniel and his buddies, they're in the King's Academy or actually kind of university, three years of training, and they get there and they have to eat this certain food. Now, there's a whole bunch of history to this, but essentially Daniel knew what we call the law of God, the first five books of the Bible. And in the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments is, you will have no other gods before me. In other words, there's one true God who we worship, and we won't worship any other idol or any other thing in our life. Well, kings like Nebuchadnezzar, they would have these idols, these small G gods that they were constantly making sacrifices to. You know, please let it rain. Please bless the crops. Praying to these wood and metal images. And what they would do is they would cook their meat of sacrificed animals in front of these idols. And so all of the king's meat, very tasty, nice meat, had been offered to these idols. Well, Daniel knew, I'm a servant of the God of heaven, the one true God. I can't eat that meat. Now, if you're a nerd like me and you want to go deeper, you can study in the book of Romans chapter 14, this actually became a controversy in the early church because uh, at that time there were still idols. And when you'd go to Kroger, there'd be meat offered to idols on sale and there'd be meat that hadn't been offered to idols at full price. And Christians started squabbling with each other about like, wow, you shouldn't eat that meat offered to idols. And anyhow, you can go deeper on that if you want. The point is we're under a new covenant now under Jesus and his work that he did for us on the cross. 
Daniel wasn't under that covenant, and he knew, I can't eat this meat as a follower of the one true God. And so here's the point. Daniel, at great risk, is going to step out and say to this headmaster of the king's university, I would like to eat something different. Now, we know Nebuchadnezzar was a very impulsive, dictatorial, dictator-type ruler who would, would randomly kill people. We know that from ancient history as well as from the Bible. And so when Daniel makes this request, he's risking his own life. He's also risking the life of this kind of headmaster of the King's University. But I love this word, Daniel determined not to defile himself. I mean, what an amazing passage for all of us in every season of life, especially for our young people when you go away to college and now, you know what, your parents aren't there, you're in a different place, it's a different language, it's a different society. Daniel's true heart shines through that he knows who he actually is. And even when everything around him changes, he's gonna stay true to the word of God. And he determines He's not going to defile himself by eating the food and the wine that the king had offered to the idols. And so he asks the chief of staff, uh, you know, could I please not eat these unacceptable foods? And the chief of staff more or less is like, sorry, if you guys don't eat the food and you start to look scrawny and unhealthy, I will get killed. So you've got to eat the food. It's the best food in Babylon. Are you kidding me? Just eat it. And Daniel, with great wisdom, kind of gently says, uh, hey, let's just do this. Give us 10 days. Just do a test. No one else will know. For 10 days, let us eat you know, vegetables and other stuff that hasn't been offered to the idols. And then after 10 days, see how we look. And if we look scrawny and pale and not healthy, then, then okay, we'll eat your meat. But just give us 10 days and, and let our God show his power. And they do that for 10 days. And after the 10 days, they look more vibrant and healthy and strong than all the other young men. So then that becomes their diet for the next three years. But all of this started with Daniel determining, even though it could have cost his life to say, I'm going to do what the word of God says. I'm in an uncomfortable place. I don't feel God's arms around me hugging me, but I'm still going to do what his word says. You see, you determine to live like God is watching even when he seems absent. That's how you experience God when he seems absent. You determine, you say, God, I'm gonna live like you're watching. I feel like you're blessing those people over there when I'm trying to follow you and you're not blessing me. I feel like the sun is shining down on all these other people, but not me. But guess what? I'm gonna determine God no matter how I feel, no matter what my circumstances look like, even if I see your very temple being ransacked and it seems like, why didn't you protect yourself, God? I'm gonna determine to live like you're watching, God. That's how you experience him in the times when he seems absent. So interesting, because in this situation, Daniel could have been calculating, right? He could have been like, well, God says not to eat the meat, but if we do eat the meat, you know, we'll be able to still be alive and serve him. So we'll eat the meat, but in our heart, we won't really be eating the meat, right? He could have calculated, but instead he trusted. And most of us, when we find ourselves in, in some kind of trial or fire or difficulty, we go straight to calculation and trying to figure it out or talking to people and getting their advice instead of going straight to saying, you know what, God, I'm going to live like you're watching. Because even though it doesn't seem like it, you are. And my faith tells me that you're still there and I'm going to live like you're watching. I wonder 
Where do you need to make this determination in your life right now? Where do you need to determine, you know what? My spouse, I don't feel like they're being fair to me in my marriage. No one else sees what's going on, but God sees it. So I'm gonna determine to live like he's watching. My boss always takes credit for my ideas. Uh, It's unfair. No one gets it. But I'm gonna believe that God sees it. And I'm gonna live like he's watching. Where is it that you need to determine? One of the themes that I realized as I've studied the book of Daniel is that we don't get to control our lives as much as we like to think. Right? Daniel didn't get to pick that his city he grew up in would fall. He didn't get to pick that he would be taken, dragged to a foreign land. He didn't get to pick that he would be chosen to serve in the palace. He didn't get to pick that he'd be told to eat this meat that he knew he shouldn't eat. He didn't get to pick that stuff. And it's hard for us to grasp because as Americans, it's like, well, you get to pick everything, right? Pick your profile picture, pick what songs you want to listen to on Spotify, pick everything. And we go through life thinking, yeah, we get to pick it all. And then one day we find out we have cancer. And it's like, well, I didn't pick that. And pick that my spouse would be bipolar. And pick that my child would have this disability. And pick that the economy would crash, right? There are things that we don't actually get to pick. And the point of the book of Daniel is when you find yourself in those situations and you're frustrated, you can relax because God is over it. And if you'll live like he's watching, he's going to preserve you. He's going to protect you. He's actually going to do miracles in you and through you if you'll choose to live like he's watching. So where do you need to choose to believe that God is bigger, that God is at work? Where do you need to determine right now to live like God is watching? Well, verses 18 through 21 tell us this moment where three years later after this training, Daniel and his buddies are presented to Nebuchadnezzar. And he's gonna have a one-on-one conversation with these dozens or possibly hundreds of young men who've been trained for three years from all sorts of different nations. And he's gonna find no one equal to them. And it's amazing, in a foreign land where no one else shared their faith, they continued to believe in their unchanging God. And God blessed them in the most unexpected ways, so they enter the king's service. Now, when he's deciding, what do I do with those Jewish people back in Jerusalem, he's asking Daniel what to do. Never could have imagined that three years ago when he was getting dragged out of his house and the city was in flames. Never could have imagined that. God will work in ways you could never expect if you'll live like he's watching. And verse 21 tells us Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. That might seem like, well, big deal. What does that mean? King Cyrus, that's about 70 years later. And the point is this. uh, Nebuchadnezzar actually ends up getting defeated by the Medes and the Persians. And so Babylon is going to switch hands a couple times from different civilizations, and somehow Daniel stays in the palace through it all. It's kind of like when when an NFL team gets a new head coach, they typically fire the general manager and everyone else, they kind of start over. Somehow Daniel, each new king would come in and say, yeah, let me meet the court. And they'd say, yeah, keep that one, get rid of those ones. And they keep saying, keep Daniel. I mean, this is miraculous. This would be in modern day terms like one of Bill Clinton's advisors 
You take a White House advisor from the late 90s with Bill Clinton and George W. Bush gets to the White House and he's like, oh, that guy's so smart, I wanna keep him around. Then Barack Obama gets to the White House and he's like, that guy's so smart, I wanna keep him around. Then Donald Trump gets to the White House and could you imagine one advisor going from Democrat to Republican? That, That wouldn't happen. And somehow God blesses Daniel so much that as this kingdom changes hands, God protects Daniel and continues to use his influence there in Babylon. Well, maybe you're thinking, okay, John, I want to be like Daniel. I want to make that choice. How do I do it? And I want to just close by telling you the true story of my Aunt Judy, who I told you about at the beginning, and my cousin Susan, who my Aunt Judy raised to love the Lord. Susan's now a worship leader at a church in Ohio. And I've seen in this last month as my cousin Susan's taking over, caring for her brother Gene, I've seen her faith, just like my Aunt Judy's faith, say, God, I'm gonna live like you're watching no matter what I go through. And she has shared with me so many ways that even though it's hard and even though it's painful, she believes God is up to something good. She believes God will bring all this together for good. Here's one verse that she posted on Facebook recently, Psalm 59. She said, I will sing about your strength, my God. I will celebrate because of your love. You are my fortress. You're my place of protection in times of trouble. I love it that this same Psalm 59, Daniel would have had these Psalms. They were written before him. And this Psalm is this choice that says, when I go through times of trouble, I'm not gonna fall for the lie that God is absent. I'm actually gonna run to him. I'm gonna make him my shelter. I'm gonna make him my protection. I'm gonna claim him as the one thing that doesn't change in a world where everything else is changing. And I'm gonna remind myself that he's bigger than the biggest forces that are at work in my life. And I'm seeing that in my cousin Susan's life and I'm even seeing it for my cousin Gene. Here's a picture of Gene, it's actually in the hospital on the day that his mom passed away, his, I mean, best friend and caretaker. I asked my cousin Susan, how's Gene doing? And she said this, his childlike faith is putting us all to shame. To him, it couldn't be more simple. Mom is in heaven. Mom isn't in pain anymore. And this is actually a guy from Susan's church who when she said, hey, will you come hang out with Gene? He came and he picked Gene up. He took him home with his family, his wife and kids, and they were playing card games. And now through the body of Christ, Gene has a family that's essentially adopting him in. And my cousin Susan is right there with him. And here's the thing, my cousin Gene's gonna be okay. My cousin Susan is gonna be okay. My Aunt Judy is okay. She's in a glorified body in the presence of God where there's no pain or suffering. And whatever fire you're going through, you're gonna be okay. You're gonna be okay if you'll continue to trust in your God who's bigger than what you can see. So keep living like he's watching and keep believing that he's actually working even if you can't see it. Let me pray that for you now. Father, in this room, we bring you our pains. We bring you our problems. We're honest with you about the areas where we feel like you're absent. And Lord, today we choose faith. We choose to believe that you're with us even when you seem to have abandoned us. 
We choose that you're working for us even when nothing around us looks like that. God, in this series, I pray for every single one of us that we would experience you as a bigger God than we thought you were. Lord, that we'll leave today believing in a bigger God who is at work in ways that we can't see. And while we can't control the things that'll happen to us in life, we can control our response in faith. So Lord, today we determine, in every one of our situations, we determine to live like you are watching, because you are. And we determine to believe that you are working, because you are. Strengthen our faith, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.